Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. London is a small place, and it is very incestuous. People know where you live. Everybody is sort of on top of each other. Jeanette Winterson. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it's my culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people. You link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, December the 21st, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we're at uh, Fitzroy House today. It's an original 1791 building which imitates the designs of Robert Adam, the famous Georgian period architect who, along with his brother, designed Fitzroy Square. And the house is one of the last remaining structures on the block that retains its original exterior. But it's uh, what's gone on inside that is uh, perhaps more remarkable. It now houses a museum on four floors, illustrating the life and work of L. Ron Hubbard. One floor is dedicated to an exhibition of his early life from Boy Scout to Explore from top fiction writer of the 30s and 40s to his later achievements. Visitors are invited to step into this 1950s time capsule and they can see here uh, original manuscripts, rare first edition books and artefacts relating to the life of one of the most prominent authors of the 20th century. Yes, uh, I, I was surprised as well to discover that uh, Mr. Hubbard holds the Guinness Book of World Records title for most published works by one author. That's 1,084 publications and the second floor is appropriately enough dedicated to his literary works do you know i would have gone for agatha christie 
but yes. you know, who knows. Diane Burstein is uh, the first of my three guests today. She has a BA Honours Degree in Literature and History and is one of London's best-known and most versatile tour guides. She's been on uh, LBC and is the author of a successful book, London Then and Now, which featured in BBC History magazine's top ten bestseller list. She's also the holder of the prestigious London Blue Badge which means she's a specialist in all things London. Tim Viner has travelled the world recording sporting events as he's seen them, including World Cup football, Olympic Games, street soccer in Ghana, and uh, he describes himself as a reportage artist, effective with a pen, a sketchbook, and a camera on location. He was the Olympic artist for the Times newspaper, using an iPad on location to draw, record, and publish emerging stories as they happened. And the contents of his blog is a record of an amazing summer of sport. He graduated from the Royal College of Art in '88. And continues to be a senior lecturer in illustration in Bath. Now, the Trebor story was written by our third guest, Matthew Crampton, explaining uh, Trebor's roots. Food wholesaler Thomas King joined forces with sweetmaker William Woodcock, his friend the grocer Robert Robertson, and sweet salesman Sidney Herbert Marks to set up the company in 1907. Matthew has uh, long been a writer. He's related to the Marks family who owned Trebor. And Matthew's previous book was Tales from the Angler's Retreat, a collection of fishing stories. Uh, I didn't know that. All about the, the Outer Hebrides. And you're also a singer. This is a very... Uh, yes. a very interesting career you've got going on here well I, when in London I can sing when in the Hebrides I can fish and I can't really do either in either place uh, not with the same degree of effectiveness one, one I suspects. find that the singing puts the fish off and uh, the fishing uh, the smell of fish puts the people off in London so that's why I keep each occupation separate to the location where I happen to be uh, we're here with the Christmas tree in the corner, so well, that must mean that this is uh, almost our last uh, recording of the year. It's certainly our last live recording uh, of the year, and what a year it's been. And I think this is a perfect opportunity, really, to look back on what London has been in 2012, and who better to start with than an artist who recorded one of the, the most significant events, certainly in London's uh, history for a long while, the Olympics. Tim Viner, what was your year all about? Well, I mean, it, you know, it did culminate in the, in the in the Olympic Games in the summer. But you know, I've got uh, a sort of fifteen-year track record of travelling around the world, recording various sporting events. But the opportunity to record it on your doorstep at at home in London was was remarkable. Um, I didn't know quite what I, what I was what I was in for in the summer. I kind of knew what the Olympics would be like when they when they came to London, but I didn't know what my involvement would be until very late on. Um, the, the, the brief to me was to was to produce work that was going out almost live, um, hence the use of, a, of an iPad. Um, I'm tr- you know I'm a traditional artist. We may talk about some other exhibitions uh, later on with, with artists that use pe- uh, pencils, brushes, watercolors on location. That's what I've done in the past, but I had to change my um, approach this year and use a bit of kit, a bit of technology that meant as the drawing was completed, they were uploaded straight to um, the Times Online editions and were in the paper the next day. So. It was it was fast and furious and uh, incredibly um, uh, invigorating sort of summer. What, what is it about sport that draws you as an artist in particular? Well, I mean, it, that's a good question because uh, I think I'm a sports fan, but uh, what, what, one of the things that I'm most interested in, in 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 the work that I do is recording a particular place at an extraordinary moment in its history. Uh, so whether that's Beijing in 2008, whether it's Ghana qualifying for the World Cup in 2006 for the first time and going and seeing how Ghanaians celebrated that, uh, that World Cup finals, um, first Asian host of the World Cup in Japan and Korea, 
um, and you know seeing an area like Stratford transformed in the way that it was over a, over a three year period before the games I was sort of in and around watching what was happening and then that amazing sort of dressing that took place in the last sort of two or three weeks uh, brought the amazing carnival to the city so so really the sport is is uh, a great passion that I enjoy following but it's the it's the location and experience it firsthand that's very important Diane Burstein what's your patch and how has how has 2012 and particularly the Olympic stuff affected your line of work? Well, my patch is the whole of London, really. So I do tours in any area of historical significance, whether it's north, south, east, or west. But obviously, east was the focus earlier this year. A lot of people were wanting to go up and visit the Olympic site because they didn't know that side of London if they didn't live there or have friends there. So in the run up to the Olympics, we were showing people. Stratford, but not only Stratford, the surrounding area, places like Bromley by Bow, Hackney Wick, etc. And the effect of the Olympics has been good for us when we're showing people East London in that when I first started guiding, the only thing that people were interested in seeing were really the parts of London associated with Jack the Ripper, the craze. That was their image of East London. But the Olympics made people want to explore East London, other parts of the district and it's made them realise that there's more to the East End than crime, murder and that sort of thing. So I think that that has had a positive effect for us because I just think that that is a fascinating area and although the Olympics have now gone off the boil in that people have been there, seen that, done that aren't so interested in going up to the Olympic site, I think it's given people a thirst for exploring East London and it's really changed the focus of London that it's not only the West End that people are going to want to see well, this ties in, Matthew Crampton, very closely with your subject matter, the, the Trebor story. And, of course, with the sugar coming in at the docks in East London, this is very much where the, the Trebor company was based. Could you tell us a bit about what the Trebor story consists of? Why, why have you taken the time to write it, apart from being related to <laughs> the people involved? Well, actually, we're on the theme of East London. Um, East London is where the, the portal where the food and the raw materials came into London. And when Tate and Lyle set up their separate large refineries and uh, warehouses down on the river in Silvertown, that was where the sugar came in. So then developed a massive sweet industry, confectionery industry all around East London and a jam industry, actually, up the River Lee. So the fruit would come from East Anglia. The jam makers came from Germany in the 1870s, and the, the sugar came up from Silvertown. So along the River Lee, you'll find a lot of jam works back in the day. But I'm more interested in the confectionery side. And so I've been spending a lot of time this year in beyond the Stratford, beyond the Olympics, into Forest Gate, East Ham, West Ham, which was a relatively new part of London for me. And it's been uh, very interesting to be out there because that's where the, the tree bore guys set up their firm back in 1907. Like a lot of people, they just wanted to make a bit of money, get some cheap sweets. So they, it's quite easy to boil some sugar. You can do it on your, the dining room table and then wrap up some sweets and sell them to, to people locally, which is what they did, like hundreds of other small sugar confectionery firms around the East End, in the East Ham and West Ham in the early part of the 20th century. It's very interesting, the, towards the back cover of your book, there's an artist's impression. This was done, I think, just before the Olympic Stadium was completed, and it shows how the Olympic Stadium is expected to look with the, the metal tower there. And basically all of the sites in the Trebor story 
uh, encompass the Olympic site. So this is this is landed right in the middle of all of that. It has indeed, and in, indeed, I, after the the Olympic Park is going to be converted into a number of neighbourhoods, and one of the neighbourhoods is called Sweetwater because it is based on the the where the firm Clarnico, which was a massive sugar sweet firm in the late Victorian times and early twentieth century, was in Hackney Wick. So yeah. So underneath the Olympic Press Center was the old Clarnico factory, which I was writing about. And so you can now see on this glorious, new, brave, bold Olympic Park, we have the remnants of some of our industrial past. You hate it, don't you? I did hate it. <laughs> I, I think, uh, well, I'm, like a lot of people, I went on a journey this year. Uh, I, I was very opposed to the Olympics beforehand. I thought it would be a massive uh, dose of corporate tosh. Um, and I think as soon as I saw the opening ceremony, I thought, oh, my God, I, I cannot believe that they have, in the midst of this, created something so beautiful. And from then on, I was converted. And best of all, within the stadiums, I hadn't realized there's no corporate advertising. And so you did get that feeling, like at Wimbledon a bit, of being free of a lot of the more pernicious influences in the world. So then I, and then the sport was great. So I fell in love with it after that. Can I, can I just double check what you're saying here? There is no corporate advertising within the Olympic Stadium. No, there is none. Well, apart from the apart from the official Olympic sponsors, yeah. <laughs> uh, with even so, which, which formed quite a significant amount of advertising. Surely, no. I'm afraid. I think within the actual stadiums, the Olympic Stadium, there were no ne- uh, sa- uh, ads for the sponsors. Yeah, I mean, you're right there. It's all it's all. 2012 London 2012 yeah. IOC Olympic branding but but in and around the park and all the all the stores uh, the selling sort of sponsors kit yeah there was quite there was quite a bit because you had the pavilions of uh, some of the companies with their branding on it within the park and uh, of course certain burger sellers were there <laughs> and they had their branding so I didn't feel it was totally free of corporate sponsorship when you were inside but I do agree that uh, with uh, the opening ceremony and the sport itself, that that really, I think, converted a lot of people into realising that uh, the Olympics were worthwhile. There were certain aspects of it, you know, I felt that it created a sort of hidey high atmosphere when you went in there with, uh, as you entered the park, there was some woman shouting, is everybody happy? We're going to the Olympics. And I thought, that's not us, really. That's not London. So it took on that strange atmosphere during the time. But having said that, it was a great success, and I think that positive things will come out of it. And I'm looking forward to the park reopening. Shame it will take such a long time, really. Shame we have to wait until 2014. I did a radio show about the Trebor story in Forest Gate just after the Olympics had finished. And, of course, this is part of Newham, which is the Olympics borough. And the guy doing the radio, the local radio show, had interviewed a lot of fine folk from Newham, asking them what they felt about the Olympics. And he was pretty balanced himself about it. He didn't find a single person who said a single nice thing about the Olympics. No one who's interviewed in Newham said, nothing's come our way. We can't afford to go. We can't go to the tickets. We, we, no, there have been no developments in West Ham or East Ham. I mean, Stratford looks lovely. Hackney looks lovely. But what's happened to us? I felt rather sorry for Tower Hamlets, the Olympic borough in which no Olympic events took place. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, we could we could talk a lot about this, and uh, I mean, I'm interested in going back to what you, you where you were originally talking about the, in, the industrial past of the area. Um, I mean, this it, it was very easy to acquire that air of synthesis sort of in the build up to the games, and um, you know there were politicians referring to the area as a sort of poisonous wasteland, that, you know, where nothing was happening. In fact, there was one of the highest sort of proportions of uh, of artists living and working in the area, often occupying the buildings that, that were once the factories, you know, Heartless Jam Factory artists studios now um and it was an amazingly sort of vibrant and is and is a very vibrant area so it was easy to a- acquire that um air of cynicism but as you say as as you, as you built closer and closer towards the games that sort of mood began to change and um the open ceremony was a big sort of moment when that did sort of change a representation of which i think i'm looking at at the moment perhaps could we say um a word or two i'm just leafing through the many many beautiful pictures that you created during the the olympic period Tim Viner. Could you say something about the processes that you've used to make this? Sure. I mean, it's, it's very, as, as I say, I've sort of bridged that gap between very traditional practices of pencil, pen, sketchbook on location and, you know, the blank screen of an iPad. Um, I, simply, I use a very simple app, which just has a series of brushes that you can choose, a colour wheel, and um, nothing too confusing, because when you're in a very frantic, busy uh, environment, you don't want to worry about the technology at all. Um, so I'm, I'm simply drawing onto the screen with a with a series of uh, series of marks that i'm making try they are sort of you know they're built on my 20-year history of, of being able to draw on location it's not like the software is leading what i do so i'm trying to sort of draw as though i were using paper i just happen to be using a screen which of these pictures is, is done using that method all of these that we look that well that's remarkable i, I had no idea that technology was at a point where they could, it, you, you could use it in that way yeah i mean that's that's what's uh, you know that is a real sort of leap forward and uh, you know i've done a number of interviews in and around this project and the subject always comes back to the ipad and i feel like at some point i'm being a sort of a salesman for that bit of kit which i am in no way doing that you know it's fantastic at night it's absolutely useless during the day uh, you know, because the sunlight catches the screen and you can't see what you're drawing so there are limitations uh, but nevertheless it is a fantastically enabling bit of uh, technology i think there's a part of me that still wants to believe that uh, we're still in the etch sketch era <laughs> it's like <clears throat> when the Hockney exhibition came out last year and that was my first exposure to iPad paintings and I was overwhelmed and I'm looking at your pictures now for the first time, I've not seen them before they're gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous and they have that slight otherworldliness and gorgeous vibrancy that you get from iPad uh, pictures but another thing I particularly like this is a book called The Games and there are very few sporting images in it and what I love about it is, is images of the, my experience of the games was going to the park, seeing the sculpture seeing the people, seeing my city transformed and that seems to be what your book's about yeah. Experiencing it firsthand, very much about being in and around a, an environment that was that was transformed, that was otherworldly for that brief period of time and trying to capture a sense of that atmosphere so, sorry. Yeah, I mean, going back to um, some of the shops in and around Stratford. So we, we, we all saw, you know, we, we're looking at a, te- a terraced house in Stratford here with cardboard Olympic rings or a shop in Walthamstow with some hula hoop rings in, in the window. I mean, I celebrated those moments as much as the, the fantastic rings on Tower Bridge and, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of big official IOC sort of rings that were in the city. Uh, Diane, you're, I know, very keen on finding things that are uh, hitherto undiscovered. You're all about uh, digging up stuff about London that isn't commonplace or well-known. I wonder if your eye travels in the same way that Tim's does. Would you be looking at the same sort of stuff as you uh, move around town? Well, as I move around town, I'm always looking for the little back streets, the courtyards, the alleyways, the unusual 
places, really. So um, I think so many people, when they walk around town, will just stick to the main roads. And I think it's nice to just veer off the main roads and look for the unusual look up above your head they always say or down below because sometimes you find interesting things under your feet for example if you're walking around the Spitalfields area there was an artist who some years ago created a number of roundels that look like coal holes but then when you look again you see that they're not coal holes at all that there are illustrations which are associated with the area's history so for example outside a school there'll be an illustration of a little boy and a little girl with pencils all around and in another area you've got a violin which is where a theatre used to be so you've got those places of interest all over London and on the other side of London when you take people to Covent Garden there's a little street called Goodwin's Court which is full of 18th century houses which used to be shops with accommodation up above with bow windows now I take people down there sometimes who've lived in London all their lives. They know Covent Garden. They're going there to the shops and the eating places all the time. And they say, do you know, I've never been down this street. So I think those are the things that fascinate people. But also, sometimes you can find things of interest in areas that appear initially maybe a little bit grungy. And often with walking tours, well, nearly always, we meet people outside the underground station which isn't always the prettiest part of an area and then just around the corner you can find something fascinating so for example um the other day I was taking a group to the area around the oval cricket ground and Vauxhall and you walk up Harleyford Road this really busy noisy road with the oval cricket ground on one side and then you walk into a little community garden Harleyford Road community garden behind that is Bonington Square where the local residents have also created a community garden and you go through there and there's a fantastic water wheel which is from an old marble factory from the 1860s that was being demolished and a local artist saved that put it in the garden and the water wheel was used for keeping the marble wet when they were cutting the marble and there are those surprises all over London and it never ceases to surprise me because the great thing about being a guide in London is you're never going to know everything and if you said you knew everything you'd be lying because it's such a big place full of little neighbourhoods so that's what makes it so fascinating and I don't think I'll ever be able to say I've been everywhere I've walked down every street I know everything that there is. It's wonderful watching your eyes light up as you talk about London. I think the reassuring thing is that having travelled its many streets uh, for for a while now, you're still finding that enthusiasm. Yes, yes, definitely. And I am never going to get bored with it I don't think and also what I like is the idea of new areas opening up so we've just spoken about the Olympic area the next area that's evolving now is King's Cross and behind King's Cross Station you've had Central St Martin's School of Art moving into the old granary building there and that area is developing so what was 10-15 years ago a bit of a no-go area now has suddenly become a place that people want to see where people feel safe 
There are some bad things that have happened there. For example, they knocked down Cullross Buildings, which was housing for railway workers. Late Victorian housing they could have easily refurbished. But you have still got enough old industrial buildings to make it an interesting part of town to explore. Your 2012 has clearly been busy. We asked our Facebook question of the week, our final one for the year. We asked, what did you put into London in 2012 and what did London give back? Some interesting answers. I think we're going to have to uh, speak about Zoe Yuki Gioni in just a moment. But uh, which of these answers attracted your attention? Matthew. Someone has written to be me rather dot 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 grew a predictive text. I have no idea what they're saying, which is probably quite true of a lot of these, I'm afraid. Um, you have to put your work in to try and understand what people are actually saying. I paid taxes. You're welcome, London. Yeah, that seems to make sense. I gave 150 hours of rehearsals to, to be in the Olympic ceremony, opening ceremony. In return, I became part of history for the best city in the world. Laura Porter. Well done, Laura. Diane. A lot of people have written about the Olympics, actually. Zishan Kodar. Olympics have revived interest in sports and showed how organised London was during the season. And he says, wish it would be like this all the year round. And that's interesting because, actually, one thing I noticed were the fantastic signs telling you where to go when you went to the tube stations. And it would say this way for Hyde Park, for example, as you came out of one of the stations. And I just think they could have that signage around all the time, not just for the Olympics, but to make it helpful for tourists and visitors. Yes, difficult to imagine it hurting. Uh, I've noticed a few of those signs have come down since the end of the Olympics. They're all rather positive, aren't they? Beth Nichols Morris in London has given me a new home. I got married in August and made the move from the US to be with my British husband. I'm still working on the other part, but I hope I can add to the wonderful diversity of cultures and backgrounds here. Nicola Jones says, London has given me my beautiful wife, and in return... I've given up my life in Australia. An interesting trade, an unsuccessful trade here from Zoe Yukigioni. I wanted to say you put everything into London and London always pays you back with bills, taxes and stress. But soon it will be over. I'm leaving. <laughs> that's more like it. Why couldn't I find that one? <laughs> well, that's the perfect note with which to lead into the first story of the week, which is, yes, it's, it's Yuletide, so we have to talk about what you're going to die of, or, or more precisely, what London's going to kill you of, Diane. Yes, air pollution causing 6 to 9% of deaths in London, this says. Well, I don't think the air pollution is a surprise to anybody. I think we'd probably all agree that London is one of the most uh, polluted places uh, where you could live, uh, certainly in this country. But it is surprising. It says here airborne particles can contribute to heart and lung problems and possibly breast cancer and diabetes, which is a pretty depressing story. We already know that air pollution causes 4,000 us to die prematurely each year but the report highlights that the issue of air pollution is quite tricky and hybrid buses generate more pm emissions than normal diesel bus buses it's saying so um what what hope is there for us if if that's the case the the mayor's office it should be said has been quick to scotch this they say air quality is undoubtedly a serious health issue but this report presents complex statistical data in an overly simplistic and alarmist uh, manner. Well, alarm is caused surely by a, a figure like six to nine percent of deaths in in London being caused by the state of the air. Well, yeah, but how many were dying twenty years ago, forty years ago, a hundred years ago? We've always had pea supers. We've always. I'm not saying it's not a very serious thing. I'd like to see a sense of proportion on this. Maybe it's slightly better than it was. Maybe it's worse. That would be interesting. I went over to Hong Kong last year, and I used to live out there. Um, 
and I went back to pay a visit for the first time. And within an hour of arriving, I had a sore throat. I had a sore throat the whole time I was there for four days in Hong Kong because of the pollution. You never get a clear view because the, 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 there's always a mist, there's a fog, there's a sort of blur on life there. Um, I don't remember having that when I lived there. But that was perhaps because you get used to it. But I don't know so many people coming to London and getting a terrible sore throat for a few days. So just keeping it in proportion slightly. Now, I'm sure if we went to Beijing, Mexico City, Jakarta, things would be considerably worse. Um, that said, I do live, I'm very fortunate, I live uh, in one of the higher bits of London uh, in, in, uh, near Hampstead. So the air is a little bit cleaner out there. Well, I was interested in the huge coincidence that we started with a Jeanette Winterson quote, and you live in Jeanette Winterson's flat. I do indeed. I found out that she'd owned this flat a few years before I moved in back in, I'm not sure, I moved in in the, the mid-90s, and she'd written Orange is the Only Fruit there. And it was fantastic to think that uh, a book of that, uh, well, it's an incredible book, uh, should have been born out of that uh, out of the flat. I'm afraid my writing is incredibly boring compared to what she writes, but... Um, I don't know how I feel. At first, I was quite shocked, actually. It's quite because sh- it's quite a shocking book, and I really was quite shocked that that had come out of the flat. And I and I almost sort of did a personal desanctification of the place before I could live in it. But I've now grown to have a bit more respect for her and and, and what she wrote. Just on the subject of your writing, I love the inside jacket here of the Trebor story. It's got a page full of all the names of the sweets that have been produced by the Trebor company. There are some wonderful ones here. Uh, raspberry Dab Sucker is one that Tim's just pointed out. Yeah, that sounds like one for me. Clickety clicks, yeah. yes. What were clickety clicks? And boat race chews, colonial fruits. So, uh, always time for a doodah as well. <laughs> Can we find any out and out uh, offensive ones? Oh, easily. It's very simple. I think any lover of Viz magazine would have a field day. I mean, we have jazz chews. Um, <laughs> we have fudge fancy boxes. Um, Are we going for fairy wands or is that too brandy far? Brandy balls. Brandy balls we have here. And I'm sure we'd like to get our hands on Granny's chest tablets. Big Ben bars. Oh, definitely. <laughs> What's that, Big Ben bars? Big Ben bars, yes. And winter lumps. What's a winter lump? Well, these unappealing. Are all, <laughs> these are all from the 1935 um, catalogue of sweets. And, I mean, that's a serious point of the book, that back in 1935, a, a firm like Trebor had 435, 430 different sweets, all different names, different brands, different products. Today, the Trebor is still one of the biggest mint uh, brands in Britain. It's owned by Kraft, who bought uh, Cadbury. And it achieves a bigger market share with four products. Back then, they had 430. And it, we just have less choice these days. You know, you go into a supermarket, there's, you may feel you have choice. But in a lot of areas, there's a lot less choice than there was in the past. And there's also a lot less fun, because sweets today are pretty boring, the names. Whereas, you know, the ones we've just heard are a lot more fun. I was very interested by what it says in there about uh, impulse purchase and kind of super impulse purchase. So the idea that the the area right next to the till where you're chewing gum and so forth is uh, just as you're paying over your money. And the idea that you, you might take a couple of steps to pick a chocolate bar off a shelf, but you're never going to move an inch to take chewing gum. So the chewing gum wrapper has to work even harder. And insights like that that I'd, I'd never even have considered. And there's a whole social scene as well seems to exist around the uh, the Trebor company, uh, certainly in the, the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, that kind of period. Um, along the same lines perhaps as Bourneville or something like that, a real culture around the company. Indeed, it's a more patrician style of firm, a family firm. People would work 
six days a week quite often and they would a lot of their social life would come out of the firm as well they'd play sports with the firm they'd go drinking with firm members they would get married to other people from the firm it was a much larger part of their life now i don't want to over romanticize that because it was still a control of their lives in many ways but i think people felt a greater kinship and a better relationship with a firm. Whereas today, everyone knows that we have the most flexible labor markets. You know, our politicians proudly brandish the fact that we can all be hired and fired at very short notice. And in fact, we are harder on our workers than other countries, and that's great. That's why you must bring your investment to Britain. And it does, it's hard not to think that working life was perhaps a little more engaging of the soul. I, d- I really don't want to overstate this, but it was a little more part of life. And you, wouldn't it be nice to like the place you work and to think that you could be there for many decades? You, you may choose not to be, but at least you have that choice. And that is a world which I think is slightly richer than the working life for many people today. Of course, today, any company that you work at, people will be coming from all over the world, not only from all over London, to work there. So there was this very insular feeling in these factories. So yes, you had the social life, but uh, it must have been a little bit strange and a little bit annoying for people who didn't have relations in these places that they couldn't get a job there. Well, you've given us the perfect lead into one of the other big stories in the last few days, which is that the results of the 2011 census have come in. And yes, we're all Jedis. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, the Jedi religion has been growing. every. That seems a peculiarly British thing, actually, to to be doing that. But uh, there's some interesting figures to reflect the the changing uh, racial profile of... London, Tim. Yeah, so this is the uh, 2011 uh, census, and you know it's interesting that 45% of Londoners now describe themselves as as white British. So that's less less than half. It was 58% in the last in the last census. I think one of the things that Diane's done, done really, well, I've been enjoying hearing us sort of talk about the scale of the city. You know, the the you know the on the one hand you're talking about little nooks and crannies in, 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 down streets that people feel are very familiar, and then you're talking about the vastness of the city. And uh, you know this, you know, London is without doubt a hugely sort of international uh, and a very mixed city and um, based on some of my experiences in other in other cities of the world that are equally as perhaps international I don't know whether I'm sort of stepping out of line but it feels to me that London is a very integrated city and um, compare New York you have very clear boundaries between Little Italy Chinatown etc and I think there are parts of London which uh, I kind of celebrate because of its um, genuine feeling of integration i think do, do you think that's right because sometimes you hear arguments suggesting that americans are all made to salute the flag in the morning and identify as americans where <laughs> as perhaps uh, we're, we're encouraged to celebrate individual uh, racial or religious uh, or ethnic identities here is is that integration uh, uh, genuine is it is it merely that we're scattered in amongst each other or is there is there a genuine uh, feeling that we're all british or all londoners or how does it work do you think i, th- I think the geography plays a part in that absolutely the way you know the way the way the, the kind of a typical kind of street will sort of contain just a wide range of nationalities, backgrounds, people from different sort of um, uh, parts of the world. And I think um, 
I just sort of sense in other places that there's a, that there feels to me like a clearer divide. Um, I'm, again, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I no longer live in London, and after sort of five or six years away, coming back in, things may appear perhaps to be changing a little bit more um, defined. But you, you come from the ghetto area of Bath, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. One of another wonderful Georgian <laughs> sort of city where. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd be interested to see the figures from Bath. <laughs> As a fisherman, I spend a lot of time in deeply rural areas, particularly up in the Outer Hebrides. And generally, when you meet people from up there uh, and you say you're from London, almost unanimously the reaction is, oh, God, how could you live there? How? Yeah, oh, God, you mustn't – you're looking surprised. That is such a prevailing attitude you get from a lot of folk, I find, at France of London, that's their their view. Um, And they often, when asked to push on this, they say, my God, how can you live there with with all those foreigners? And then I get, come back home, and I get on my 24 bus, and I'm going through Gospel Oak, and there are five languages being spoken on the, on the top. And I'm feeling at home, and I'm loving it. Um, I feel more comfortable there than in a place like Stornoway or uh, Benbecula, where you will not see a face that's not white. Now, what is this? I mean, maybe it's because um, I'm a Londoner, and so uh, it, it runs so deeply through my experience that I'm used to having this variety of people around me. I think one of the things... I was talking to a French guy the other day who lives in London. He said, you know, you don't have to live here long before you can call yourself a Londoner. You know, you can can go to Paris for 50 years and you still won't be a Parisian. I mean, New York, there's an argument to be made that you've got to be in New York for quite a while before you come to New York. And that's a very open-minded city. But London, people like to call themselves Londoners pretty damn quick. And that makes me very proud yes zoe yuki guioni notwithstanding (laughs) yes uh, it's interesting you mentioned new york because i remember when i went to new york which is about 30 years ago and i felt at home immediately when i arrived there because that at the time was such a cosmopolitan city much more than london and i think the reason that i felt at home when i went there is because although i could be described as white british go back a few generations and my family didn't come from British because I have a Jewish background so they were from Russia and from Poland and places like that and so I felt very at home in this multi-ethnic society and now London always has been like that but is a lot more visually like that and I never feel that I'm not at home in London. I can see why people who came from very white areas outside of London might feel a little bit uneasy. But I think it's more their perception from what they read in the press or hear about on television or on the radio that makes them feel a little bit nervous. And one thing that always interests me is that when some years ago you had that nail bomber, David Copeland, who was going around uh, letting off bombs in areas where you had a lot of gay people, Asian people, black people, etc. One of the things that he said when he was questioned is he was surprised that when he went to Brixton, that there were a lot of white people around. He set off to set off his nail bomb and he thought he was going to an area where everybody was black. But when he arrived there, he realised that it wasn't a ghetto. But this is the impression that a lot of people get. And this goes back to what you were saying about we don't really have those ghettoized areas, even though sometimes from what you read in the press, you will imagine it is like that, that London is a lot more mixed up with people from all different backgrounds. And although people might live in their separate communities, 
On the whole, I think people generally rub along quite well together a lot more than is perceived. It's like what you were saying with the changing identity of the East End, isn't it, really? That that, uh, there's so many different areas and subdivisions of London and um, we we can't expect to be present in those all the time, except for you, Diane, of course, you're you're, you're everywhere. Um, But an area gets a name for a particular thing and, uh, you know, maybe that's the lingering impression that stays in one's mind for 20 years or something. And, of course, in those 20 years it evolves and, and changes changes at quite a rate of knots. Well, Brick Lane is a good example of that. Now, if you say Brick Lane to most people, they think immediately Bengali restaurants, the Asian community, and they think it's going to be some sort of ghetto. Now, Brick Lane has changed in the last few years, and I've noticed one end, and that is the end between the Truman Brewery and Bethnal Green Road, has suddenly been taken over by vintage clothes shops and very arty, young people so i always say well the latest community to come is not an immigrant community as you had before with french huguenots irish jewish uh, etc bengali is um young artists taking over the place so that has evolved recently and all the areas that you go to are changing all the time I'll give you another interesting social trend. I live up in Gospel Oak, which has... That, that's not a trend. That's just where you live. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a definite trend while I'm there. And when I moved in back in the day, it was full of folk like myself who, you know, writers, teachers, artists of various types. Not, it's not a hugely artistic community, but it's people who sit around at home doing not much all day and go out for lunch and try and find a new cafe to have lunch in. But by some quirk of reason and quirk of financial nastiness the property prices there have risen quite high and now the lord has declared that a plague of blankers be upon us and verily we are surrounded by folk who can afford the large amounts of money Uh, and it's only really kicked in in the last four or five years and they're benign bankers because it's a nice place to live and it's it's family oriented so you know it's not going to be like some of the well, the more egregious West London postcodes, but it is, it does, it, it's a major social change at a different level of the spectrum. I like the idea of a benign banker. I don't really know what it means. <laughs> I'm being nice to my neighbours, I think. Yes, I think I, think I detected. There's, actually, there's a, a representation of London. We're going to talk about London in video games in just a moment, but there's a, a representation of London via Twitter. A map has been uh, cooked up by Mohammed. Adnan from UCL's Department of Geography. Now, regular listeners to the show will know that the UCL mapping department turns out an enormous number of maps, a lot of them very clever representations of London based on all sorts of different criteria. There was a creation from James Cheshire, who we talked about, and we talked about the map earlier this year and it visualised the commonest surnames as taken from electoral rolls and it seemed to suggest something about the ethnicities and the clusters of uh, ethnicities around London. Now what about uh, this one? We've had a look at it online just now. It's uh, based on the Twitter uh, names of the user, so not the Twitter handle but the the name of the user and these have been collated and uh, some sort of sense has been made of them with the usual graphic interpretation. Matthew Crampton, what do you make of this exercise? Um, absolutely nothing, I'm afraid. You, you, you've kindly shown me on a computer what the map looks like, and um, I, I still quite haven't got my head around the difference between a Twitter name and a common name. I'm very interested in ethnicity across London. I'm very interested in the census. Well, let's go to Tim Viner. Well, I could actually make a link back to the census here, and there's a great quote here by Agnieszka Czepluka, 
He was 29 and he moved to London from Poznan in 2008 with a Brazilian husband. And, and, and it's the random nature in which these decisions are made. She said it was the only option for us between Brazil and Poland because we both spoke English. <laughs> so the different reasons as to why people might be moving here and acquiring these, the hash, Well, no, it's, the, it's, just, it's simply their names. Just their names, yeah, okay. So, I mean, I suppose that might be um, equally as revealing as, as the census. I mean, I, you know. Can't you just get the telephone directory which has got a postcode and a name, put it into a computer and do the same thing. You seem distinctly underwhelmed by this. Well, I just think... I, I mean, the whole Twitterati thing. I mean, I don't think you should give it too much attention. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 it's... There are always people in society who like to talk a lot. And, you know, Facebook I get, but the Twitterati... Twitter just seems to be ego diarrhoea. It just seems to be for those who need to emit a lot of words the whole time. We all know such people. Some of us are such people. Um, And I just don't think you should give them too much space. It's interesting because as a tweeter who tweets London facts about history, I notice that... I wouldn't look at my followers and think, oh, aren't they at a multicultural lot? But you tend to be followed by people who are like you. So I tend to get followed by other London historians who aren't a particularly multicultural bunch, I have to say. So I found it quite interesting that this guy looked at Twitter on the whole and found that the statistics were much the same as in the recent census. Forgive me for a slight aside. Um is should anyone doubt the messianic nature of, of tweeting, just look at the word followers. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. No, I, that's well, I, I rather like the idea, actually, that you, your followers on Twitter a- actually did follow you around. I'd quite like to see that <laughs> as, a, as an alternative visualisation of the subject. Indeed, indeed. And I do understand it for commercial reasons. I mean, you're marketing yourself, you're marketing the business, and that's a very essential part of t- Twitter. And I, that seems to be the prime purpose for it. But for the folk who like to share, oh, gosh, it's a bag bowl. And here's a photo of it. That's what my dinner is tonight. That's not for me. Do you know what? We've, we've found our conversation moving in this direction uh, several weeks running. Uh, there seems to be a, a movement against Twitter going on here. Uh, let's look at other uh, ways of thinking about the capital. Again, sort of technologically driven, but this is all about video games. Yes, Digital London, the capital in video games. Now, I don't know why I'm talking about this because I'm somebody who's never played a video game in my life. I was interested in this article which mentions various uh, video games and the way they portray London. Uh, one called Among thieves and it says it's a globe-trotting adventure that starts small opening in a traditional london pub quickly torn apart by nice old-fashioned bar brawl much like the getaway there are enough stereotypical geezers planted about to make the average londoner cringe so this is probably like the old view of the east end i was talking about populated by the craze but then i was interested another one that was all about zombies and it says tower bridge and buckingham palace have both been successfully recreated and it starts at shadwell station i quite like the idea of the zombie invading Shadwell Station and then there's another one that talks about iconic landmarks brushed aside in favour of the Canary Wharf skyline and this reminds me of when I had a group of students from Manchester who I had to take around on a coach tour and normally at the beginning you might ask them what they particularly might like to see because on a coach tour you can cover the whole of London really and they said 
we want to go and see Alan Sugar's office because they'd all been watching The Apprentice. And of course, that they meant they wanted to go to Canary Wharf. And I said, well, I can show you that, but that's not actually where his office is. It's a very boring office block in Brentwood, with no insult to anybody from Brentwood who happens to be listening. But of course, you always see at the beginning of that programme, the Canary Wharf skyline, which is almost in films and television, taking over from those old views of red buses going over Westminster Bridge and Buckingham Palace and I think that it's quite interesting now that in films today they're trying to get away from the stereotypical shots of London and yet there are other locations that are being used again and again like the South Bank for example, the area around Canary Wharf with the skyscrapers and uh, views of the London Eye sometimes the back streets around Southwark or even Spitalfields that we mentioned earlier. There are certain streets where they're constantly filming in. So they've got away from those old stereotypical shots. But then there are other places that are taking over where I sit there and think, oh, no, not again. Can't they find somewhere else to film? Uh, that reminded me a little bit. Wasn't there the, the filming before the Olympic ceremony? They flew a helicopter or two underneath Tower Bridge or something like that. Very daring stunt. I think it might have been in order to film Daniel Craig. Uh, as though he were arriving at the Olympic thing. You remember that was part of the Olympic opening ceremony. Yeah, I mean, I, this conversation, I mean, I love the idea that you could become very familiar with a city with ever, without ever having actually visited it. I mean, these skylines are changing and they're becoming, uh, you know, ubiquitous. We see them all the time. Um, but... You know, part, part you know you you can't smell and breathe the city in the way that you can by by being there, and uh, you know a computer game is a very different experience. So that's your recommendation for how to improve them, yeah, presumably get some <laughs> get some smells coming from the zombies. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. No, but I'm, I mean, I, you know, I, I just love the fact that. Um, you know you can you can feel like you know a city very well again we sort of mentioned new york a few, a few times when you go when you when you go into to to, uh, to manhattan it's instantly familiar because whether you've been there or not because you've seen it in so many movies and i think you know now people will feel like they know london very well because of the you know the way they've experienced it through computer games and, and other things well while we're on the subject of locations around uh, london as, as you all know over the last few years we've been poking our noses into all sorts of interesting corners of London. We're looking forward to plenty more nosiness in 2013. One broadcast that we've got cooking has come as a direct result of a listener drawing to our attention a a little-known facet of London's history, and we've done some research into that, and we have unearthed an all-but-forgotten story, which we'll be broadcasting next year. Uh, But perhaps there are places and people in London that you feel we should be visiting, maybe because there's a historical resonance there, maybe a great untold story about London, maybe just a place or a person you find particularly interesting and you want the, the rest of the world to know about them and if so we'd love to hear from you so just drop us a line at info at londonistoutloud.com won't you we can return to this idea of visual representations of various things and, and in fact uh, well I'm not, I'm not quite sure about this this is a, a show on at the royal academy at the moment it's going through till february and it mentions constable in constable gainsborough and turner in the title but are they really prominent in the exhibition here Tim Vine? Well I think this is you know this is an interesting story I mean this is this is about the tools of one's trade at whatever time you're working you know and uh, and uh, Constable Turner you know they all have particular ways of working which um, which did record the world around them 
firsthand you know, as as it was happening. So um, you know, Constable did devise this way of painting on, on out in the open air, where his, his his oil painting studies would be kind of racked up, still wet, um, and he would be able to take them back to the studio. It wasn't enough for him to kind of look and observe and and then go back to the studio and imagine it. He wanted to be recording what was in front of him, and. Um, but you know what, what? What a lot of I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Should I be making this transition into uh, the technology that I've been using for this last exhibition? But actually, I kind of can't help feeling that if if they were working today, then they would be using the kind of technology that I'm talking about. Uh, the the opportunity for a, a war artist, a reportage artist, to be able to capture audio at the same time as capturing mark drawing and mark making and putting the two things together makes it a much more sort of compelling image and com- compelling story that you can make so it's just the tools of the trade that you have to be using at any one moment i see that gainsborough is part of the the three that are on and forgive me my my main knowledge of gainsborough is his portraits <clears throat> which usually show sort of people from the sloan rangers hand- handbook of the day um, shown in the best possible light, but clearly in some cases all the light and the costumes and the colouring of the world cannot display them in any particularly uh, visually arresting way. Um, was that, for someone like him, uh, did Constable do portraits? I wasn't sure, because that would seem to be a uh, a challenge if you're very interested in very similar, well, painting things as they are. I think we've got three great British artists here that, we're, that that are being put together and are being exhibited. But but you're right. I think my my sort of comparison there was more to do with Constable and, and, and Turner. Mm. Well, actually, well, just a small point apropos of this is when I saw oh eight quid to get into this exhibition, I think blooming hell. I, I mean, I, I see this stuff for free, <clears throat> and I didn't want to spend eight pounds to see the great masters because I was reared on free art, and I just thought for a second of a lot of young folk these days who've never paid for music in their lives whereas I was brought up on free art so I don't want to pay for art and and um, I'm not sure where I can draw from that but it's uh, what struck me yes I haven't been to this exhibition as yet but uh, I do talk about all these artists when we go to various houses where they lived in London so for example uh, Turner has a plaque in Covent Garden because uh, although the house doesn't stand he did some of his first paintings of the sea and ships etc when he used to go down towards the river thames and his father was a a hairdresser there and gainsborough he had a house in pall mall and then constable spent a lot of time in hampstead and is buried in hampstead which people are always surprised about because they expect that he's going to be in essex or in uh, suffolk but he used to go and do the views from uh, hampstead heath and yes gainsborough does seem the odd one out because he was busy painting the beautiful people very much associated with bath really where all the society people were whereas uh, the other two were more into uh, landscapes and I suppose if you're going to put those three together then uh, you wonder why they didn't include Joshua Reynolds because he was the other big name from uh, that period. Uh, going back to those Gainsborough paintings in Bath that you talked about I was actually in the Holborn Museum when I very first got an iPad trying to sort of work out how to use it and I was drawing fr- in front of a Gainsborough and uh, making a copy and the uh, the person that was in the, in the museum came up to me and said from the 
17th century to the 21st century and I think there was that kind of sense of you know bringing those two things together I mean there, you know there's something in this uh, article which talks about in the early in the exhibition that talks about the, the, the British artists very early on were known for simply making copies making copies of um, European artists you know Poussin or, or Rubens uh, through engravings and other things and I think you know conceptually what they're trying to produce is this idea that a landscape is there to be observed and recorded and um, you know the list of artists that are included uh, produce their own u- unique record of their time we're going to move on from uh, from that we've got a couple of uh, very small stories i think i liked your story so much about santa claus it's such a perversion of what santa claus should be could you tell us about the loss of your child well yes i mean uh, you know this is sort of uh, we're, we're sort of scarred by this i don't know whether my four-year-old son is scarred by it anymore he's, he's coming up a little bit more but um i do remember losing him outside uh, john lewis at a time when uh, two or three days before christmas and there seemed to be a kind of stag group of 25 plus santas on, on the rampage and when my wife had gone in one direction i'd gone in another direction and we tried to, and we asked a policeman um, if they'd seen anyone suspicious. <laughs> we talked about this guy. Actually, there was quite a number of these guys, all in red suits and, and, and large white beards. They could have been anywhere. <laughs> Meanwhile, our son was sitting in John Lewis, uh, perfectly happy. Uh, why, why are we bringing up the subject of multiple uh, Santa Claus? I'm not quite sure exactly when it started, but there's a tradition now on a certain Saturday coming up to Christmas, SantaCon 2012, where people will dress up as Santa Claus. Although in the picture we're looking at, some of them look a little bit more like Superman or Batman. And uh, they go walk through the streets of London, presumably visiting various hostelries en route. And it's quite interesting to me because I sometimes wonder, well, when did all this start historically? Will we be talking? about it in the future as a great historical movement in London, uh, just as we might talk about the first coffee houses opening and something that people did in the 21st century. It's like this recent thing of Movember with men growing moustache. When did that all start? The first time I heard it mentioned was about a year ago. And suddenly you see all these guys walking around uh, wearing moustaches, raising money for uh, charity. So it's quite interesting how something can start up and very quickly become an annual tradition, which this very clearly has become. Yes, you've got to be very careful how you broach the subject if a friend uh, appears with a moustache in Movember, I've realised, because you can't say, oh, is, how are you doing? Oh, no, I shouldn't. No, uh, We'll talk about this in December. <laughs> I think you'll find that most of these Santas are, 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 are aged less than 35, because yeah. uh, in my latest epistle from Old Farts Corner, you may have noticed that young people like to dress up. They love it. They do let me, let me write this down. They just love dressing up. You know, people go away, they go camping at some festival in a muddy field somewhere, and they'll go with next to no clothes, but they'll have a complete outfit as a Mr. On or something like that to take with them. And great. And, I, and so I think a lot of the new things coming out are based around the young people's love of dressing up, like Halloween now. With yes. the, we've gone down the American road. And if you see, the, there's, a, there's a place in Camden Town called, es, I think it's called Escapade. Mm-hmm. Um, the queue of hundreds of people on the day before Halloween for people waiting to pick up their horror zombie uh, outfit and stuff is is a new trend. Yeah. That's interesting what you say about Halloween because I am not one of these guides who gets dressed up for my tours, but I make one exception. Well, you do them naked? Uh, well, some guides, you know, will dress up like, you know, they're doing a Jack the Ripper tour, so they'll dress up as Jack the Ripper or whatever. I don't do that. But once a year on Halloween, because you get a different crowd of people coming to tours on Halloween, they're there for a bit of a laugh, not too much history, few ghost stories, lots of executions. So I must admit that I don't have to put on too much 
makeup to look like a witch, but I do have my witch's hat, my cloak, and my uh, my broom. And it used to be that uh, I'd get on the tube with all that, and everybody would look at me. But within the last couple of years, nobody looks at you because everybody's dressed as a witch on Halloween. So that is the norm. They look at you if you're not dressed as a witch. Well, I think the quality bar needs to be raised, judging by the photo on Londonist.com, which of course is where all our stories are coming from. This is a fairly miserable effort at looking like Father Christmas. We've got one who's a, a Father Christmas gimp. The, the red uh, balaclava covers over his eyes and mouth as well. We can't see anything of him. There's another fellow who's wearing his underpants on the outside and a, a mask of some sort. There's uh, a, a couple of people who've got the beards hanging down around their necks. They're not even bothering to wear their beards properly. I think this single picture shows a transmogrification of all the different trends that are happening. So you've got the dressing up, you've got the superhero figures, you've got the S&M gimp figures, um, and you've got the Santa, the Halloween. It's That's young people in one picture. Let's drop a word in about our sponsor. For the last time this year, for the, that makes it sound like I'm, uh, I'm annoyed and I'm tapping my foot. For the last time this year, would you like a free audio book? Audible.co.uk are sponsoring this show. They have a library of over 60,000 digital audiobooks, and if you sign up for a 30-day free trial of the Audible service, which basically consists of getting an, an audio book or two every month, then you can get a free audiobook and you can keep it whatever you decide after the free trial and you can burn your audiobooks to CDs, you can listen to them in the car, make copies of them, uh, put them on MP3 players, iPads, all of that kind of stuff. And all you need to do to get your free audiobook is to go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. What else do we have to look forward to in the coming year or coming years, Tim Viner? Old Street Roundabout, you know, a, a kind of bit of an eyesore at the moment. It's that entrance point to the area that we we're talking about that's been transformed so much recently. It is um, about to get an overhaul and uh, this, this uh, what's it referred to as kind of silicon area of London now with these creative industries, um, it needs a better entrance than it's got at the moment. And this is going to be an all glass, potentially a carbuncle, who knows? It could be, uh, it could be wonderful, could be awful. It could be one of those things that looks really bad after about two years got to be better than what's there at the moment and in two years time it'll be covered in street art anyway so <laughs> and we have mayor appoints economic advisor the reason this is controversial they're paying 127,200 pounds a year and it's a part-time job so that's a pretty good salary for a part-time job and the reason that people are objecting to it is because there are already all sorts of business advisors who are working for boris johnson the london enterprise panel the International Business Advisory Council and London and Partners who have partly replaced the old London Tourist Board and as a tour guide I think it is disgusting that we no longer have a tourist board and we no longer have a central um, tourist advice centre in London. They closed down about a year ago the place in Lower Regent Street spend the money on a tourist advice centre, a visitor centre in a nice central place like Covent Garden and Leicester Square. Don't tuck it away and put back those signs that we had during the Olympics to show people where to go. That's what they should be spending the money on. Yes, that's right. There's no war on. What happened to all the signs? I know. They just took them down and uh, now 
we've just got to find our way around London uh, asking people the way and hoping they know. But of course, they might all be visitors as well and employ blue badge guides to man those tourist uh, visitor centres and pay them a proper fee. That's what I say. I think so you're angling for the 127,000. Yes. Yes. yes, I want to. I got your number. Yes. Right. Um, it's time for a bumper quiz from the, the last couple of weeks in history. There's 10 questions as opposed to our usual five. This is your opportunity, particularly if you come from Bath, to show your knowledge of London. <laughs> Monday, the 10th of December. I'm after the year in this one. Monday, the 10th of December. Anti-vivisectionists march through central London to protest at the dissection of a brown terrier dog several years earlier. The anti-doggers clash with police at Trafalgar Square in what would become known as the Brown Dog Riots. But what year did the Brown Dog Riots take place? I'll uh, take the closest guess. I'm trying to wonder which century it's I know, in. I know where the statue is of the Brown Dog in Battersea Park, hidden behind a bush, and I think it was... Uh, but I don't know the year. I should do. And I'd say it was early... 20th century, probably around about 1907, something like that, but that is just a guess. Well, I've got to say, you got it to the year, 1907. Yes, very well done, Diane. I must have known, sort of subconsciously. I think you must have done, so that's one to Diane. Uh, Tuesday, the 11th of December 2005, much of London is covered by a vast plume of smoke following what event? The earthquake. I mean, no, the uh, the, um, the, uh, volcano in Iceland? No, it wasn't. The fire up in Letchworth or on the M1 of a f- big factory? No, no, but you're on the right sort of track. Was it a fire? It was, it was a fire, yes. Was it uh, north of London? That, that it was. Uh, was it one of the... It was uh, where, where all the artwork was kept? Where, uh... No, not Sarchi's uh, one that you're thinking of. No, it doesn't look like this I is going to come home. That, no. It was the, the Buntsfield Oil Depot fire in Hertfordshire. Oh, well, I got a Hertfordshire and I got a fire. That sounds yeah. good to me. And it's against the prevailing winds because, you know, anyone who knew nothing and was just trying to bulls this thing would have gone for southwest of London, but I went north. Well, uh, let's, <laughs> let's have a think about that. No. <laughs> Wednesday, the 12th of December, 1849, March. Isambard Brunel, the father of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and the engineer behind the construction of what dies in his house in Westminster at the age of 80? The Thames Tunnel, yes, absolutely, Diane. A lot of people won't have heard of the Thames Tunnel. What's it used for now? (laughs) Well, it is part of the what used to be known as the East London Line, the London Overground, the Ginger Line, the Culture Line, or whatever it's been branded as recently. And it is the little bit that goes between Rotherhithe and Wapping. And if you go, if you look very carefully out of the window you will be able to see some of the arches of that tunnel it used to be pedestrian in the early days but now you go through by train yes it was designed for horse and cart but no no horse and cart ever passed through Uh, if you could give fuller answers please diane i'd appreciate it (laughs) thursday the 13th of december 1995 riots break out in brixton following a protest over what it's not the response to broadwater was it no it wasn't Shaking of the head from Tim. The 1980s, I know that there was a chap who was being... Yes, but that's the 1980s. This is 1995. No, I can't we think want... of the 1990s, of what particular reason started them off. If you were to go for a, a regrettably obvious sort of scenario, you probably wouldn't be far off. Somebody dying in police custody. Yes, I'm afraid so. Yes, the death of a 26-year-old man in police custody. Yeah. Friday. The 14th of December, 1836, Tooley Street Station is opened as the London terminus of the London and Greenwich Railway. It would soon be joined by other lines and would be renamed as what? London Bridge. 
It was London Bridge Station. Three to Diane, one to Matthew. And as Nicholas Parsons would say, Tim bringing up a very strong <laughs> third place. Haven't played the game before. <laughs> Monday, the 17th of December, 1983, an IRA car bomb explodes, killing six people, including three police officers, and injuring a further 85 Christmas shoppers. Whereabouts in London does this happen? Bus at the Aldwych, was it? It wasn't. And it wasn't uh, Sloane Square? No. Harrods? It was Harrods, yes. 1983. That's right. Do you have any questions that don't one. involve death or disaster? No, it's Christmas. Bar, I'm bug. We need one from you here, Tim. Ask one about bath. <laughs> 18th of December, 1890. The world's first deep-level electric tube line opens, connecting Stockwell and King William Street. The City and South London Railway, as it was called, would later become a part of which current tube line <laughs> the northern line yes it was the northern line yes I yeah i was <laughs> gonna say the northern line well i think i think diane got there within uh, an, a, a fraction of a second meaning was it the first tube line the northern line of all the tube lines or well it's, it depends whether you're calling it tube or underground doesn't it really because the underground was uh, the bit between uh, farringdon and paddington which was of course the uh, metropolitan line but that's not really tube because it wasn't deep enough to be the tube. It was a cut and cover, cut wasn't and it? Cover, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's five points to Diane, one to Matthew. Tim, who's about to score, on the following question. Wednesday, the 19th of December, 11.54. Your specialist area, Tim. Which monarch is crowned at Westminster Abbey? What was the year again? It was 11.54, just before lunch. It's Henry II? It was Henry II, yeah. yes. In a pensive way, respect, but... Total respect, total respect. <laughs> I'm really bad. We're supposed to know these off by heart as guides, I have to say. But when it gets, uh, you know, when it gets before the 17th century, well, when it gets before Henry VIII, I'm not too good, you know, I'm not too... Six to Diane, who is really leaving you guys in her trail of dust now. <laughs> Thursday, the 20th of December, 1909, the distinctive Arding and Hobbs department store near Clapham Junction is destroyed by what? An explosion. No. Fire? Yes, it was destroyed by fire. Having been rebuilt, it would become a branch of the now defunct Alders chain. For an extra point, anybody want to guess which department store it is now? Debenhams. It is Debenhams. (laughs) Eight to (laughs) Diane. I feel terrible giving you a bonus point as well. Uh, And a bonus point to anybody called Diane. 21st of December, 1842. A prison accepts its first prisoners. Which prison? Brixton? Not Brixton Prison, thus disqualifying you from this question, uh, Diane. Uh, Wormwood Scrubs. Not Wormwood Scrubs. Oh, the, oh, the other prison in London then. Um, Pentonville. Yeah. It is Pentonville oh. Prison, yes. Two to Matthew. Oh, was that it? Oh, by me. <laughs> I was sort of expecting a big... Well, that's it. Um, Diane, I think you may have won. Thank you. What a surprise. <laughs> the honour of winning. And you, you, get to, you get to mention your website first or something like that. It's pretty, pretty special. Commiserations to our two, uh, our two losers. I think, I think there's, there's no getting around the fact. <laughs> Diane, where can people find out more about your uh, vast brain? Well, I have a website, www.secretlondonwalks.com. 
www.gov.uk. I also am on Twitter, I'm afraid, um, which is at Guide Diane, so you can follow me. Or I imagine everybody listening to this will have a computer, so they won't need to phone me. But if you do, 020-881-2933 is the phone number. And I've got a new mailing about to come out. So if people want to know about walks and visits, then uh, do get in touch. I think it's safe to say that you'll be in safe hands, listener. Tim Viner, fortunately, who is not a professional quiz competition entry, but is a fantastic artist, where can people find out more about your works and, and see some of your pictures, importantly? See lots of pictures, but no historical facts connected to this website at all at www.timviner.bigcartel.com. We've got a series of limited edition prints there if you want to relive the Olympic Games. Matthew Crampton. The only only activities of mine that are available online is the Treeball Story. So do go to thetreeballstory.com. Lots of pictures of sweet wrappers and factories and stuff like that, and you can read more there. Well, thank you all for being here today at Fitzroy House in West London. And uh, thank you for listening to the show for the last year. We've got a Christmas special edition coming up next week. It's going to be a mashup of some of the highlights of the past year's broadcasting. We'll be back with you in 2013. So if you celebrate Christmas, have a fantastic one. If you don't, I hope you get a bit of a holiday at the very least. And uh, have a very happy new year. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Diane Burstein, Matthew Crampton and Tim Viner. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.